Well, here's my question for you this morning. What do we do when members of a church disagree? What do we do when members of a church disagree? And if you think that that isn't an issue, I politely say you're a little bit naive, okay? Because you know, I hope you know, that there are people in this room who disagree with you about some very key issues. Not everyone in a church disagree or agrees about everything. And so just to, just to really name some of these things, I, I made a list here. There are dozens more that I could put up here. I didn't even put any of the theological stuff that isn't in our statement of faith that we may disagree about. But, but here's the list I have. Politics is up there first. Politics. How do we educate our kids? Public school, private school, home school. Alcohol. Gun control. Worship styles. Tattoos. Harry Potter, that was more of like a 20 years ago thing, right? But maybe you're still J.K. Rowling, I, I don't know. Um, how to dress for church, maybe you're judging me right now, I, I don't know. Toilet paper, over or under? I put that on there as a joke, and then I talked to Noah, who's on our, our facilities team. Um, he says West Park does have a stance on this issue. It's, it's over, Okay, so if you pay attention, it's, it's over. So there, okay, I don't, I don't know. But yeah, so West Park, so maybe, maybe people are going to change their membership after that one. I don't know. And look, I mean, you probably look at that list, and there are some things up there that you say, who cares? Right? Like, I mean, you know, the, the toilet paper thing, the Harry Potter thing, maybe. You say, who cares? But I also would guess that, that maybe you could pick out an issue or two up there that you feel pretty strongly about. That if you were to get into a discussion with someone in our church and they disagree with you, that may be a hard conversation. Let me just go to the first one here because I think that one's going to, or if, you, if we go back to that list, Noah, um, let's go to the first one here, politics, right? I mean, um, I just want everyone to be clear about this. Like, you know that not everyone voted the way you did in the 2020 presidential election. You do know this, right? Okay, I know this because I know you all and I, I, I've been in conversations. They didn't. And I'll, I'll say this, they, they're probably not going to in 2024 either, okay? There are, and that's, that's an important thing, but there are key things that we disagree about in the church. And so the question that we have before us this morning is what do we do about that? Because because the Bible never calls us, as a church community, it never calls us to uniformity. It does in some issues. We'll talk about those in a second. There are some issues that it calls us to be uniform on, and I'll talk about those in a second. But when we get into these kind of issues, it does not call us to uniformity, but it does call us to unity. It calls us to be united. And that's what Paul is addressing this morning. And so let's look at this. Let me just start because... Um, there's some context as you read this. There's some context that, that may be a little bit unclear as you heard Colleen read this. So let me give you the context here of what Paul is talking about. A major theme, we've talked about this a lot through our series in Romans, a major theme of this letter is the issue of the fact that there were these two groups of Christians in this church in Rome. There were Jewish Christians, those who had grown up as, as Jews, um, as Jesus was, had then gone and become followers of Jesus because they believed that he was the Messiah and now are worshiping him and following him with their whole life. And then you have Gentile Christians who weren't Jewish 
um, Paul was taking the gospel to them, and they've now turned to follow Jesus. And you have these men and women united in the same church. They're united over foundational issues, being Jesus, but there's a lot of things they disagreed on. And so you'll see here, Paul draws a distinction between a group that he calls the strong and a group that he calls the weak, the strong and the weak. And so if you look into the, to the, you know, the, the commentaries on this, there's some disagreement about who the strong were, who the weak were. What most agree is that in general, and there's probably some crossover here, but in general, when Paul says the strong, he's talking about the Gentile Christians. And when he talks about the weak, he's talking about the Jewish Christians. And here's what I need you to, to change your thinking on a little bit. If you're thinking like me, when I first read this, when I first started studying this, and I see Paul talking here about the strong and the weak, my mind went to, he's saying one group is better than the other, right? If I call a group strong, then they're better than the ones I'm calling weak. That's not what he's doing, okay? That's not what he's talking about. This is not a judgment on their character. This is not a judgment on how good of a Christian they are, right? This is not, you know, they talk about in a church how 20% of the people do 80% of the work. You ever heard this? This is not the 20% of the strong and the 80% of the weak. It's not even about how they're serving the Lord. What this is, is it's talking about conscience. When he calls this group weak, he's saying that they have more of a tender conscience. And some of these issues that they were dealing with in Paul's day, the things that he's going to write about that I'll explain in a second, their conscience is weaker. Their conscience would not allow them to have some of the freedoms that the Gentiles were able to have. You understand this? So it's not a better, worse it's just what their conscience allows. And so you can see here what it comes down to. He's addressing two examples that they were, that threatened to divide them. They're probably not things that divide us, but they threatened to divide them. And it's two issues, diet and dates. Diet and dates. So here's what the diet was. So um, you gotta picture the history here, okay? So some Jewish Christians are a part of this church and they grew up, following the Old Testament food laws, right? And so you read the, the Old Testament, there's these food laws. Who gave those laws? God, right? The one true God, Yahweh, gave these laws. They grew up following these, and now they, they're followers of Jesus, but they're not wanting to give up those food laws. They're wanting to still eat in a way that they consider clean. And so Paul addresses here that some would actually only eat vegetables because even though they were allowed to eat meat, they couldn't guarantee that the meat was prepared in a clean way, so they would just only eat vegetables. That's one part of the church. Then you have the Gentiles who follow my diet. Put it in front of me and I'll eat it, right? I don't even give much thought to it. Whatever, it's all good. We're free in Christ. I'm eating it, okay? So that's diet. Days is similar. There's some debate here. Does the Sabbath get involved in this? I don't really know, to be quite honest with you. There's a lot of debate. But what was happening here is that the Jewish Christians, there would be some special days for them. We know this. Um, uh, different festivals, different holy days, things like that. They're days that they've celebrated their whole life. They don't want to give up celebrating those days. You have to remember, their diet, as Paul says here, is a way to honor God. And participating in these festivals in these days is a way to honor God for them. But the Gentiles never grew up doing that stuff. So they're like, well, we don't want a part of that. You know, like, what's that? Who cares? So you see the disagreement here, right? We have these Gentile Christians, these Jewish Christians, the strong, the weak. 
So try to, again, these are not our issues. This is not what we're fighting about on Facebook. This is not, if our church divides over this, that would be shocking to me. But put yourself in their shoes. Can you picture what that would feel like as a Jewish Christian? You've grown up being told your whole life, trained up by your parents, this is what God wants you to do. And he did. <laughs> like that, that's, that's the thing. Like, like they're, they're worshiping the one true God. He did want them to do these things. He did want them to eat this way. You've grown up hearing this over and over and over. That would be hard to make that adjustment, wouldn't it? And then you have the Gentiles who say, have you ever had bacon? Like, it's amazing. Like, why? just be free, right? Like, dude, Jesus made us free. Be free. That's the issue here, right? You can see how that would cause some problems. What's Paul's advice? What's Paul's advice? What's Paul's advice when they're debating over food? What's Paul's advice to us when we're debating over politics? When we're debating over whether Christians should drink alcohol or read Harry Potter or get tattoos? What's his advice to us? Here's three principles I want to point out to you this morning. I'll try to keep this quick. Three principles to help us stay united even when we disagree. Here's principle one. Treat others the way God treats them. Treat others the way God treats them. Verses 1 through 3. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Listen to this. For God has welcomed him. You see the underlining there. Welcome him, for God has welcomed him. This is an amazing, amazing principle. You see what Paul's doing here? He's actually taking Jesus' golden rule from the Sermon on the Mount, treat others the way you would want to be treated. And he's actually taking it up a notch here, right? Treat them the way that God treats them. This is a little bit cheesy, but I've been calling this the diamond rule, right? It's another step from the golden rule. It's the diamond rule. Don't just treat them the way you want to be treated. That's good. Treat them how God treats them. Notice this. You know there are actually four ways that a community can treat each other. Four ways. Every community has this decision. Four ways that a community can treat each other. Four ways that we can live. Let me outline them for you, okay? First of all, a community can live by what people throughout church history have actually referred to as the wooden rule. We could live by the wooden rule. And here's what it says. Treat others the way they treat you. We see that in our world, don't we? <laughs> right? Like, if, okay, I mean, like, this should be like Twitter's, like, slogan, right? Just treat, treat others the way they treat you. Someone comes at you, come back harder, right? That's how, this is, this is what this is calling us to live. Everything in life is a quid pro quo if you follow this rule. If you're nice to me, I'm nice to you. You're nice to my loved ones, I'm nice to your loved ones. You say something about me, I'm coming back 10 times harder, right? Treat others the way they treat you. And what we see here, I mean, this is a diagnosis of our world and our culture right now, isn't it? Because if you live by the wooden rule, guess what happens? It's constantly escalating isn't it? 
constantly escalating. I'm going to treat you how you treat me. You come at me, I come at you harder. Then I'm going to come back at you harder. Then I'm going to come back at you harder. And eventually, someone either ends up in jail or you have to go your separate ways. So what do we see in our culture when you look at politics or social media or even a lot of churches? What we see is this escalating, 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 and then dividing. Escalating and then dividing. So what we have now are these groups even of Christians who were just alone in their own little groups with people who completely agree with them about everything. Because we've escalated to the point where we have no choice but to divide. That's what happens when you live by the wooden rule. (laughs) You have no other choice but to separate from each other. But there's actually a better rule. There's a better rule. We call this the second level. People have called this in church history the silver rule. And this this is much better. Okay, this has actually shown up in the teachings of Buddha, Confucius, the Stoics. There's actually some places in the Bible that allude to it. It's actually a good rule. And it goes like this. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. You see why that's better. Okay? So this, I, you know, I would relate it to this. I think this is really good. I would relate it to this. This is a call to be a water purifier which actually we, we, we should have this attitude. Here's what I mean by a water purifier. A water purifier, when the dirty water comes in, it doesn't give dirty water back. What it does is it keeps the dirty water in itself and gives back clean water. That's what this is doing. When someone comes at you with dirt, when they come at you trying to harm you, you don't return the favor, okay? You keep it. You hold it. The, okay, Buddhism would say, do no harm, right? That's, the, that's the, the guideline here, do no harm. It's a much better thing than the wooden rule, isn't it? To just not harm anyone, no matter what they do to you. But notice this, this is a wonderful rule, but Jesus actually takes it and goes further in the golden rule. In the golden rule, Jesus says this, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Do you see the difference? That can feel like it's just semantics, like golden rule, silver rule, all the same stuff. It's not just semantics. In the golden rule, Jesus is not just saying that we do not harm other people. Jesus is actually calling us to go take the initiative and bless other people. Go take the initiative and do unto others as you would have them do to you. I think a good way to illustrate the difference is think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, Picture this. You're walking down the road, you're walking down the road, you see someone beat up, hurt, can't help himself. You don't have time, you have to get, you have somewhere to be. The priests and the Levite, what do they do? They keep walking. They're following the silver rule. They didn't hurt him, right? Like, they didn't cause any harm, so they just keep on walking. What's the golden rule say? Do unto others as you'd have them do to you. What do you want to happen to you if you're laying on the side of the road beaten up? I want someone to stop and help, right? It puts the initiative on you. You actually have to go and fight for justice for the one who has been harmed. You have to help them. You have to be hospitable to them. You have to love them. You have to bring them in. And in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, what's impl- or what, what's Jesus, what point is he making? Even if you disagree with that person on very foundational issues, right? Even if you're a Jew and they're a Samaritan, you help that person. You see that? The golden rule and the silver rule could not be more different. 
Yes, we, we do the silver rule. We don't harm, but we also go out to be a blessing to others. How do we get the strength to do that? Because that's hard. I think that's where the diamond rule comes in. We can be a blessing to others, even those we disagree with. Why? Because we treat them how God treats them. <laughs> right? We treat them how God treats them. How does he treat them? He welcomes them. He loves them. Even when we were his enemies, he died for us. That's the question we ask. It's not just how am I feeling. It's how would God treat this person? How does God feel about this person? That's how we treat him. You know, in the Old Testament, God describes the love that he has for us, and he uses this beautiful Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed. You know what that describes? We describe, in, our, in some of our translations, it's translated steadfast love. I kind of prefer this, loyal love. Hesed love is that love that when you stand at the front of the church or wherever you get married and you're doing your wedding vows and you're reading through those, this is the love you're promising. It's a love that says, even when I see the ugly parts of you, even when the worst of you comes out, even when we have really huge disagreements about important things, guess what? I'm not leaving. <laughs> You're stuck with me. That's what God says. That's, that's Hesed love. Look, I mean, think of the story, you know, Hosea and Gomer, right? Gomer runs away from Hosea to, to just get rid of him and sleep with whoever she wants to. And what does God say? Go get her back. That's the kind of love he has for us. And that's the kind of love that we have to have in a Christian community. We are not easily offended by each other, Right? And even when we are, guess what? We're not going anywhere, right? That's the call here. That's the call. So that's number one. How do we deal with a community where we sometimes disagree, maybe often disagree? We live by the diamond rule. Number two, how do we deal with Christians that we disagree? How do we live in community where we disagree? Number two, love them because you are united by the essentials. Love them because you are united by the essentials. Let's read this, verses 4 through 9. It says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that we might be Lord, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Here's what's important about this I want to point out. Okay? Paul is calling here for unity amongst Christians who disagree. Okay? Unity amongst Christians who disagree. But here's the key thing I want you to see here. To be a Christian, there are certain things that you have to agree about. Okay? So I just want you to see that, that Paul is not saying here that there is no such thing as truth. That's not true. Okay, 
The truth is, there are certain things that we must agree on to, either be to even be considered Christians. Augustine, well, at least people say it's Augustine. We don't actually know who said it. It's attributed to him. He once said it beautifully. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. But what we need to see here is that there are essentials that we need to be united on. Okay? There have to be essentials that unite us. And in this, in this little four through nine here, there's a lot. Let me just point this out here. Paul outlines some of those essentials. Verse four, he says, we're united by the fact that we submit to Jesus as Lord. Verse six, we're united by the fact that we seek to honor the Lord. Verse eight, we're united by the fact that we belong to the Lord in life and death. Verse nine, we're united because we put faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So these are core issues that have to unite us. Okay? We may not agree on everything. We may not agree on Harry Potter, but we have to agree on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We have to have these theological issues that we are willing to die on that hill because they are that important. They're essentials that have to be present for us to be united. And so, if you say, Jesus was a good man, he was a good moral example, but he wasn't God. He didn't live a sinless life. He didn't die on the cross. He didn't de defeat death by rising again. If that's you, first of all, let me say this, you're welcome here, okay? <laughs> like, we're not asking you that when you walk in the door and kicking you out if you can't say that, right? You're welcome to worship with us. You're welcome to come and, and learn about Jesus. I hope that you felt welcome here if you're not a Christian. But the key here is just that. You're not a Christian, okay? Like our church is a community that is united around some very essential things. Our church is united around the fact that we believe that Jesus is God and fully man and that he lived the perfect life. And he died the death that we deserve. And he rose again, and he's currently alive. Okay? We believe that the Bible is the word of God. We're united around these things. So if you don't believe that, you're welcome here. You're welcome to come to our community groups. You're welcome to ask questions and see what we're about. But Christians, let me talk to you. We unite around these essentials. Okay? That's what unites us. We unite around the fact that we are all trying to follow Jesus together. And we want to help each other in that. That we have a desire to look more and more like Jesus. So what Paul is helping us see here is that these are essential issues that we have, we have to die on these hills. But there are also non-essential issues where as Christians we have liberty to disagree. So the fight here is not to take tattoos and put it on the same level as the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, okay? That's our fight. Don't make everything a first-level issue. But there are first-level issues, see? Let me also say this. Paul is calling us to unity in, in areas where we disagree. But this does not mean that we do not hold our opinion strongly, okay? Did you notice that? First of all, I'll, I'll say this. Actually, in the next section, we'll get there next week, Paul actually puts his cards on the table and says who he agrees with. <laughs> he says he's on team strong, 
Okay? He says, like, I believe they're right. He's the one writing the letter. Okay? He's like, that's, that's the team that I agree with. Okay? But we should still unite no matter where we are. Notice this also, verse 5. He says this, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Okay? Paul is not calling for us to not have opinions. He's not calling us for us to not have opinions on these essential issues. What he is calling for is even if we disagree, we treat each other like family. We treat each other like family. We have to, that's what Paul has gone there over and over again in this letter, but we have to picture that. The church is a family, right? Look at, look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, okay? Or do, or what you, why do you despise your brother? Paul wants us to see that. When, you, when you're talking to another Christian, you're talking to a family member. And I know in our day and age, that's maybe a bad example because family members are dividing too, okay? But a good family should say, even if I sit across the table from you at Thanksgiving and fundamentally disagree with you on some very key things, you're still my brother. You're still my sister. You're still like, like I will never leave you. I have a hesed love for you. I'm not going anywhere because we are family. And if, here's, here's the thing. I, I, say, I said this before when we talked about community. If you want to get a friend group together, you can hand select a friend group that believes exactly what you believe on everything. You can get a group together that votes like you. You can get a group together that thinks like you. You can get a group together where you never disagree, right? That's actually what people are doing now. Okay, that's what, that's what the algorithms, sorry, get me on a, on a little, little tangent here, but that's what the algorithms on social media are doing to us, right? Is they're actually putting us in those communities where we say something and all we get back is, yes, preach, right? Like that's all we get back. Here's the thing. In a family, in a family, okay, that's not how we judge things, right? We don't kick you out when you disagree, us, disagree with us about something. We're not united by those third level issues. What we're united by is the fact that we have the same parents. And so as a Christian, we are adopted by the same father. Okay? And when he adopts us, he brings us in and he says, here's your brother, here's your sister. Be united. Not uniform, but united. So in the church, we don't tear each other down. We lift each other up. Okay? Our differences are a blessing, a good thing. Okay, I love it here. I just, this may make no sense because I just came up with it when I was sitting on the front row down here before I came up here. But I think this is a, this may, again, may be dumb, but I was thinking about this. This, this is a pretty good illustration for what community is. I was sitting there and I'm singing and we were singing, behold him, right? Beautiful. And there was just one moment. Here's, here's the thing about me. I'm the worst singer I know. I love music. I love singing. I'm horrible. I'm tone deaf. But there was this one moment where Amy and Avery were singing, and I was singing, and I was like, I sound pretty good, right? Like, did you, did you feel that, right? Like, like, their voices were so good, and it was kind of taking over the room, and as I was singing with them, I'm like, this is the best I've ever sounded. That's an illustration of community. We all have strengths. We all have weaknesses. We're different parts of the body. You bring us together, and we make each other better, even when we disagree even where we have different talents and skills. You see that? We lift each other up. We don't tear each other down. And that takes us to point three, final point. How do we deal with Christians we disagree with? Don't judge them. 
because we will all one day be judged. Don't judge them. We'll all one day be judged. 10 through 13 says this, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So in this family, we don't judge each other. And when I say judge, I probably need to explain what I'm saying. Right? Because Paul said that a lot. But that word, actually, especially in our culture, is one that is used a lot, and we often don't actually know what it means. You know that Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, Paul's quoting it here, Jesus says, judge not. He says that, judge not. That seems to be the, the thing that everyone has cocked and ready whenever a Christian tells someone they don't agree with them. Right? Judge not, okay? Like you can't, that's, you can't say anything to me because Jesus said judge not. Is that what that means? Well, if that's what that means, then Jesus broke his own rule over and over and over again. Because Jesus said judge not, and he went out and he showed compassion to prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. But what did he say about them? He said they were sick and in need of a doctor, he came and he showed them the compassion, but he never said they're okay. He actually was very clear, they're not okay. Then you have him talking to the Pharisees. He was pretty hard on them sometimes, wasn't he? Okay, Calling them whitewashed tombs. That's bad, right? Like that's saying you look really good on the outside and on the inside you're dead. Okay, Like, like that's judgy, right, to say that to someone. And it's not just, Je well here actually, let me add this too. John 7, 7, here's how Jesus summarized his ministry. The world hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Okay, that's Jesus. It wasn't only Jesus. John the Baptist was beheaded for calling out the sin of Herod, and Jesus called him the greatest man ever to live. Nathan called out David on his sin and caused him to repent. Paul calls the church in Ephesus to point out each other's sins. Over and over again in the Bible, we get positive examples of people saying, you're wrong. Okay? Like, like, that's not the issue here. That's not what judging is. We are able to say, you are wrong. Actually, if we're living by the diamond rule, loving others how Jesus loves them, we will tell people when they're wrong. Right? In, in the right, compassionate way, we will tell them when they're off the mark because that's what it looks like to love people. So if not judging means, doesn't mean that we just never tell anyone how they're wrong, what does it mean? Well, here's how Jesus explains it. People kind of stop before this, but here's how Jesus explains it right after those verses. Matthew 7, starting in verse 3. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do you see Jesus' point? What he's against here is judging people unfairly and forgetting our own state, right? As sinners as well who don't have everything right. What he's against is not judging. What he's against is unfair judging. Okay, here's, here's how one commentator, R.T. France, says it. 
He says, what the Bible is dealing with here is the down-to-earth issue of unfairly critical attitudes to others, which combined with a naive lack of self-criticism threaten to disrupt a close-knit community. That's what he's talking about here. That attitude that criticizes everyone else but never takes the time to turn and look at your own sin, to look at the log that's in your eye. Here's an example. I think this, this is a, a beautiful example of what this looks like. You remember the parable that Jesus tells of the tax collector and the Pharisee praying in the temple? Remember this? They go in and, and they both pray these prayers, right? A tax collector, the, you know, the, the dirtiest sinner in that town, the Pharisee, the one everyone looks up to as, as you know, the religious leader, the one who never, never sins, right? And the Pharisee goes in and, and here's the prayer that he prays. Praying to God, tax collector can hear him, and he prays this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. And we read that, and if you're like me, you read that and you say, that guy is a punk, right? Like, what in the world? That guy is horrible. I hate that guy. But that's not very far off from how we are a lot of the time, is it? When we see the sins in others, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, and maybe no one else gets this, but when we see the sins in others, don't we have a very similar attitude? That attitude that is very critical of others. It's very critical of the ways that they fall short. It's very critical of the ways that we feel like they're getting it wrong, but we never actually stop to look at ourselves. So we complain and we say, that person just does not care about the mission of Christ. Or that person just lacks love. Or that person is so ignorant. Or this church could be doing so much more, right? Why don't we pray more? Why don't we send more missionaries? Why are we giving our money to that? Why are we doing this? Why is this what we care so much about? And you know what we never stop to do? Consider that maybe we could be part of the change. Maybe that instead of complaining that people don't pray enough here, we could actually start praying ourselves. Right? Instead of complaining that we don't do enough evangelism, we could ask, how am I doing? Am I sharing the love of Christ with people that God has put in my life? We can get this critical spirit that is always looking at everyone else and where they fall short, and we never stop to ask how we're doing. Right? We never stop to ask how we're doing. Paul wants us to fight against that critical spirit that is always unfairly finding fault in others, even if the fault's right, okay? Like, you may be right. Let me just say that. You may be right. Maybe this church doesn't pray enough. Maybe this church needs to be more missional. Maybe this, I, I, this is not a perfect church by any means. Maybe the people in your community group need to do a lot more stuff, a lot of stuff better. But have you thought about yourself? Right? Have you asked those questions about yourself? The key here is what Paul said back in Romans 2. Okay? Here's what he says, verse 1. He said, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Listen to this. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Hmm. Francis Schaeffer has a, a great illustration I think brings this home. He, said, he says, picture, I want you to picture this. Okay? Use your imagination. Adults aren't good at that typically, but let's use our imagination. 
Let's picture that you have an invisible tape recorder around your neck. It's been there since you were born. Okay? You can't feel it, you can't touch it, you can't see it, but there's an invisible tape recorder around your neck. And Paul tells us in our passage that one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So here's what Schaefer says. He says, I want you to imagine that you are standing before the judgment seat of God and you begin to make excuses about how you've fallen short. He says, I want you to picture that God does this. He takes that tape recorder that you didn't know was there. He takes that tape recorder, he unclasps it from your neck, and he holds it up. And here's what he says. This tape recorder has begun recording every time you said, you ought. You ought to do this better. She ought to do that. We ought to do this. And he plays you saying, you ought, you ought, you ought. And he asks, how do you measure up to your own standard? Ask yourself that. How do you measure up to your own standard of what you think others should be doing? I'll speak for myself. I fall very short, okay? <laughs> because my standard for others is up here, and my standard for myself is often down that's why we shouldn't have this critical spirit. Because we can't even live up to our own standard. Right? But when we, have that, when we have that critical spirit, that is what destroys community. That's the pride, that's the carbon monoxide that comes in and chokes out community. It chokes out community groups. It chokes out churches. It's that critical spirit. So how do we fight against it? How do we fight against it? And I'll, I'll close with this and just summarize in general. This is how I'll close. What do we do when church members disagree? What do we do when church members disagree? I think the summary is this. We lean into the gospel. Okay? We lean into the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. The gospel gives an example of how to treat people. Because as I said, Jesus died for us even when we were his enemies. So when we're leaning into the gospel, even when we are in church with someone who we disagree with, who we don't like, <laughs> who comes off as an enemy, how do we treat them? We treat them like God treats them. He died for them. Okay. Second, the gospel unites us in our differences because sin is the great equalizer. You know this? No matter how good you feel about yourself, you know what Romans 3.23 says about you? You have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The gospel tells us that no matter where we are, we are all dead in our sins. If it wasn't because of Jesus. We all only have life because Jesus lived that perfect life that we could never live. It's the equalizer. Okay? How can we be so critical of others when we know ourselves that we're all sinners? How can we hate another person when Jesus died for them? Right? You know that? You know Jesus died for tax collectors and zealots and Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and Democratic Socialists and people who drink and people who don't drink and people with tattoos and people without tattoos? He died for all of them. Right? So how can we hate the people that he doesn't hate? And then finally, the gospel helps rid us of that spirit, as I said. By trusting in Jesus. Right? By trusting in Jesus, who didn't have that spirit. 
okay, who modeled for us that if anyone could have a critical spirit, who is it? Jesus, right? Because if he looks at himself, he sees perfection. But he didn't do that. He was compassionate. He was loving, even the people who didn't deserve it. Let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you for giving us community. It's hard. Right? It's hard. I mean, I wish that we all were just uniform on everything. That would make things a lot easier. But I pray that this church, that when people look in at West Park Baptist Church, they will see a church that is united on some very key core issues. That we all genuinely want to be your apprentices, your disciples, to follow you, to look more like you. But they'll also see there's things that we disagree about, but we love each other anyway. While our world is escalating and dividing, our church loves each other like you have loved us. Let that be true of us. I hope that's true of us. When people look at our community, they see that. Lord, we thank you for the model that you gave us of being having conviction, but also having compassion towards others who disagree with you. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.